0: I think next week, we'll tape the show from Cassie's new Casper mattress. We'll all lay on the bed and do our interview from there and see who falls asleep first. You can go to Casper.com and get your own mattress. Use the code RADIO and save $50 off the purchase of a new mattress. You can also get a pillow, some sheets, who knows what else they might have there for you. Go to Casper.com, type in RADIO as a promo code and you save 50 bucks. Terms and conditions apply.
1: I've had 20 of those in my life where people just said, you're never going to get it, and we get it. For me, that's sort of like waving the red flag in front of the bull. No problem. Bring it.
0: What's up, y'all? Welcome to Rebel Radio. That was Cassie with her favorite quote from today's guest, Phil Q, my man, Phil Corderero. I know you also heard about our sponsor, Casper Mattresses. Go buy a Casper. Casper.com use the code Rebel Radio, save fifty bucks. Phil Q was president of Virgin Records, Warner Brothers Records, EMI music. This dude is a music business legend. He's worked with everybody from YouTube to the Spice Girls to Janet Jackson. Huge, huge mega hits. And he's going to break down everything that's wrong with the music business and how it got to this point. Some great lessons about Uh, running independent companies, major corporations, and some of the differences there. For those of you corporate folks that want to learn how to navigate those waters, he's got some wisdom for you. Phil is also now running a new music streaming service called Guevara. Check out Guevara.com and send us a comment. Let us know what you think about that. You can find us on Twitter at Rebel Radio Net. And as always, subscribe to Rebel Radio on iTunes or SoundCloud. And before we get into the interview, we're going to hear our EDM.com track of the week. Here it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Pickle ones. Pickle ones.
2: I got a pickle ones. Woo! Eyes low looking for the thickest ones. Wrist tips wrapped around the cylinder You a different kind of bad bitch You sinister I fill her up, Then throw it on the floor And tell her pick it up Pick it up Yeah
3: Bad bitch You might need your ass whipped She rolling on E So the gas lit I come up behind her like an ad lit Throw a few deceased guys Fresh money
2: with no crease lines with a pussy making peace paper
3: one more time like it's yeah. my my in my veins
0: from the double cup. I just doubled up now all right that was our edm.com track of the week called brick of ones from the artist job Jetson if you like that go to soundcloud.com hip-hop for the hip-hop channel and you'll find much more like it and now my interview with Phil Q. Well, Phil Q, thanks for coming, man. It's it's awesome to have you here. Um, I don't want to kiss your ass too much, but uh, you are a bona fide legend in That's the music scary. business. Yeah, uh, it's nice to have somebody older than me here because usually I got these young kids in the hot seat, <laughs> and I just feel old. So now I feel like I'm I'm with my people, with your peeps. Yeah, exactly um but uh but it's great to finally meet you you know i've I've been seeing you from afar for years and um you were kind of at the top of the music business when i was getting started and so you're just one of those names that i've seen around and uh <clears throat> the more i've learned about you just you know preparing for this uh, you, you've had a really interesting career
3: i've been very fortunate because i had very good teachers yeah mm-hmm when you were growing up in the in the business in those years you you basically either went to the there were two big schools that you could go to there was mm-hmm. the Columbia big red machine school right you know uh or there was the Warner Brothers mm-hmm. school and everything else kind of fell in the middle the MCAs and Polygram yeah uh EMI but but those the two big schools were the the sledgehammer uh, steamroller, Red uh-huh. Machine yeah. method, or the um, huggy-feely, artist-come-first, Warner Brothers. Interesting. Yeah. And and I always gravitated to the Warner Brothers side of things because I was always an artist-centric guy. Mm-hmm. But I was very fortunate because the school, the schools I went to was the school of Jerry Moss, which was A&M, mm-hmm. followed by the school of Chris Blackwell which was Ireland. Yeah. followed by the school of Clive Davis at Arista. Yeah. and then very influential for a lot of years in the school of Richard Branson. So I took a different path than a lot of my peers and had a different um different pedigree as a result of that. Yeah. Well, I want to hear all about that and and I've got some uh I
0: want to dig into some of that stuff a little bit, but if you would take us back to before that, to how, how you got started in the music business. And I'm always curious what what makes somebody want to get into music as a career.
3: Okay. Um, my dad was the first full-time endodontist in New York. First guy doing root canals full-time in New York. Oh, wow. When, after the war. And as a result of that, he had a kind of interesting clientele coming through his chair. And over the years, he had Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald and, um, you know, Jimmy Dorsey. And, you know, so the – my dad was a guy who who would act like we acted as teenagers. He'd get up in the morning and before we even had breakfast on the table, you know, there'd, there'd be this guy in the living room blasting uh-huh. big band jazz, you know. My nice. father was a nut for big band and Dixieland jazz. Yeah. So. We grew up in the house. I grew up. In, I was the oldest of f- four boys, and we grew up in the house with music all the time. And uh, when I was uh, when I was fifteen years old, I convinced the guy next door, who was old enough to drive, to uh, I gave him five dollars to fill up his gas tank. Nice. And we drove into uh, Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx. We drove all over on a Friday and a Saturday, and we went into every place. That we saw you know like a restaurant or a or a a club mm-hmm. you know of course i was too young to get in but right. somehow i managed my way in there it and was a lot more lax back then i remember and uh, i could and i handed out this card with my father's phone number on it i told him i could get them bands what and then and then the following weekend for another five dollar full tank of gas we drove around the same route except i went anywhere there was a band playing and told him i could get them jobs oh wow now, I couldn't do either one because yeah. I was a 15-year-old kid yeah. in ninth grade. I was out of my mind. Mm-hmm. You know? But yeah. then the phone started ringing off the hook <laughs> at my father's house. And I started cutting deals and taking 15% off the top. And that went on for about three days. And so like you're that. a booking agent in, in uh, high school. Just a bookie. Yeah. <laughs> just a bookie. And Wait, then,
1: wh- where was the permission to do this? Was it just uh, you? Like that is where
3: the, fault ca- that's where the problem came. There was no permission. <laughs> and uh, so my dad ultimately said, well, Either you're moving out or the phone's moving out. Yeah. So decide. Yeah. You know, at 14, I was 15. I wasn't going anywhere. So the phone number got changed. And my first job ended. Yeah. yeah. So
1: did you actually book acts? Sure. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing.
0: That's fantastic. That's, what, what was it? That's the, like the best do, story do you remember, I've ever heard. Do you remember an act that you booked?
3: Um, No. 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 None of them. Yeah. They're All of like, them and none of them. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I get it. Um, oh, my gosh. So funny. It was pretty funny
0: so uh where did those kind of balls come from
3: i i don't i can't even tell you you know i don't know i don't know if i was just delusional or Mm -hmm. you know you know like a lot of people my age if you were if you were aware in 1964 you know that the the one demarcation that we all identify with was that sunday night on the ed sullivan show when the beatles came off the Mm -hmm. plane you know if you're old enough to remember that yeah then you know and and we were in the family room on a sunday night my brothers and my parents and you know and i can i can remember that moment being a cataclysmic change for me mm-hmm. you know i i just i looked at that on tv and i said i don't have the slightest idea what that is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i'm going to be part of it right and nice. I, I made a i mean at at 6 years old yeah i just decided that's what i'm doing right. that's fantastic
0: so did your
1: dad's career have anything to do with this idea that you can, like,
3: no, no, just because you
1: knew these artists, you didn't like, no, well, he knew them as patients, you know, he wasn't right, hanging right.
3: out with them, but yeah,
1: I know, but it's just so interesting that he's like talking to those kind of patients, and you have yeah. this like desire to, well, he was them.
3: being a doctor, you know, so yeah. he didn't, it didn't really, other than being a fan and a doctor, it didn't phase him either way, mm-hmm. but it was, it was really, um, motivating for me, you know, and, um, anyway, so as a kid, you know, i I got involved with local bands and did, you know, what I called was a manager, as much as you can be a manager when you're, you know, 16 years old. Right. right. And, you know, yeah. lugging equipment around. and Sure. You well, know, and, then, and so What kind of music were you into at the time? Oh, in those days, it was all rock bands. Yeah. Yeah. So who was like, what did were Did you grow up in Long Island, in New York? No, I grew up in San Francisco. Oh, okay. Yeah. But in New York, there were bands like, there were bands like the Vanilla Fudge and the Alessi Brothers that were, mm-hmm. like, from Long Island that hadn't broken yet. Yeah. And they were... You know, so we were around those guys. They were the rascals. I mean, obviously they were much older than I was. Sure. You know, I was a little yeah. kid. Yeah. But you know, we somehow elbowed our way into the table. You know, and um, and then uh, I went to school. It was then things after I left high school. Things kind of happened pretty quickly because um, I went to college, and the, and I went to school in Syracuse. And the reason I went to school in Syracuse is because I spent all of my uh, high school senior year trying to figure out who had a music business program and it didn't exist hmm. and hmm. the nearest thing i found was that syracuse university had a journalism school and i figured if i went to a journalism school and i hooked it up with a business degree that somehow that was going to get me you know i mean yeah yeah in the mind of a 17 year old kid That's you know better than probably a lot of these music business tr- <laughs> programs yeah so i go to so i go to syracuse yeah and uh you know my parents drop me off at the dormitory and they pull off the curb and i turn to the kid standing next to me whose parents just dropped him off of the dormitory, and his parents pulled away, and we looked at each other. And I said, hello, I'm Phil Cuadarraro. And he said, hello, I'm Rob Light. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. And it was like, you know, and we were buddies. Yeah. We lived in the same floor of the dorm. So Rob Light went on to be head of music at CAA, right? He went, he's the biggest agent in the world. Yeah. Wow. And we've been best friends for 40 years. Yeah. And, and uh, he, uh, you know, in, very early at school, he was booking the shows, and I got into a college rep program. They had these college mm-hmm. rep, pr- at the record companies at that time had college programs yeah. where they would have students come on board and be um, promotion guys, promotion people for college radio stations. Mm-hmm. And we each had a territory. My yeah. territory went from Albany <clears throat> to um, Cleveland working for A&M Records, Herb Alpert and Jerry Monster's label. That was the first job I ever had as a college rep. You know, Nice. It was great and uh, I didn't get that until my second year halfway through my first year after I met Rob I was at the radio station trying to convince him that I knew what I was doing on a radio station which <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing sure but it was you know I was as good as anybody was going to be it's college radio it's college radio and I got I ended up in a uh, in a meeting and everybody left the room I was sitting in a room by myself and I turned to the guy next to me and I said I'm Phil Cotteraro and he said I'm John Sykes and then so John, when then we to be became buddies. One of the
0: founders of MTV. Right. John
3: is one of the founders of MTV. Yeah. John is was the president of CBS Radio. Wow. John is now the president of iHeartRadio. Radio. Yeah, and um, was the founder of uh, Behind the Music for mm-hmm. VH1. And you know, John's had a huge career. Right. So, yeah. so John and Rob and I, as a result of that uh, three or four years in Syracuse where we overlapped, you know, we we were best friends. We did everything together. Um, I was the record guy, and John was the record guy, and Rob was the booking guy, and, mm-hmm. you know, we just, we all came out of school and went on to our yeah. lives, you know, and we've we've stayed connected ever since. But that, it was just <coughs> complete serendipity how that unfolded, you know. Mm-hmm. So how important is that? I mean, you know,
0: <coughs> sounds pretty amazing that, you know, the three of you kind of had each yeah, other. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I always think, you know, I think back to my own career and other people I've seen that you know having that group of people that you start out with you're not necessarily working together in the sense of you're not partners in a company right but you're all there for each other and you're kind of helping out you know
3: it is important who you uh associate yourself with you know you can't you can't predict who's it would be kind of crass to associate yourself only with successful people mm-hmm. of course you know yeah but we were friends first and foremost, we all stayed friends we we were always friends above everything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We happened all end up doing the same thing. The punchline to that, of course, is that Syracuse really was not a music industry school, right. right, yeah, yeah,
1: that's
3: crazy so we so you know it was they had a television radio program, they had a journalism program they had a they never had a music industry program. And the three of us went on to do this thing, you know yeah. so, which was kind of nuts, yeah, right now. The nice thing for the three of us is that we then went on to create one of the first um, music industry curriculums Mm. in America. Nice. So um, John and Rob and I, so we've always been on the, when we left school, we stayed on the board, right? We've always stayed on the Newhouse board. And then we created a curriculum that was named for the guy who funded it, the Martin Bandier program. Okay.
1: So that's what it is now. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That's
3: amazing. Do you remember... (laughs) Do you remember any
0: uh, records you worked at as an A and (coughs) M in those years, college (coughs) rep?
3: Is there one that stood out? Yeah, there were a couple of them, but none of which are going to sound too sexy. But there were in those days there were records by the Carpenters, Uh the Captain and Tennille, yeah, Sticks, uh, Head East. Mm -hmm. Those that was the repertoire in those days. Carol King, we worked Tapestry, nice which went on to be, you know, the second biggest record of all time behind Thrill. Yeah.
1: Stayed in bed all
2: morning just to pass the time There's something wrong here, there can be no denying One of us is changing, or maybe we just stopped trying
3: Good about A and M was that right after we got there, there was a guy in uh, Hartford who was the college rep in our territories, kind of abutted each other at Albany, you know. Mm-hmm. His name was Michael Plen. You know Michael Plen mm-hmm. at all? Michael Plen's a great promotion man, and he w- he ended up being my head of promotion. Well, he was he was actually very involved with the IRS with Miles Copeland for mm-hmm. years, and then he ended up being my head of promotion at um, Virgin. For many years and we worked at A&M together for many years but um, in those days uh, right about the time that you know all the captain Tennille and the carpenters and all that stuff that's when Jerry Moss started going off into a different direction that's when he signed the police and Joe Jackson and squeeze and yeah really great stuff sure
0: and then you went on so <coughs> if I remember correctly uh, you went on the island.
3: And then uh, Virgin <coughs> Island was after A and M. Okay. And that was for about three years, mm-hmm. and then um, Arista for about okay. a year, and then Virgin.
0: Okay, nice. And then ultimately and Warners, then Warner's and then yeah. EMI. Right. Um, so, multiple people have called you a marketing genius. Why? Why? <laughs> why would they say such a thing? Clearly, they're confused. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, talk about what that means in in the record business. Mm-hmm. What I mean, I know you're involved with, with breaking you 2
3: I know that you so know, at island else? we got the credit for breaking you 2 which is great. I don't Absolutely. know if that makes us a marketing genius. I mean, I, was, I had the tenacity, yeah, as a promotion man. You know, the thing that broke U2, just to go off track for one second, okay, the thing that broke U2 was a big rock band when I got there to island. In 1982, U2 was already starting to play big rooms, and they already had. Is that boy where they at yeah, at that point? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is not, sure. you know, I'm not Christopher Columbus. I mean, yeah. this is a this is a big band already. Yeah. You know, I can't take credit for that. Right. What I get credit for, what my team got credit for, was that we took U2 from being a rock band to being a pop band. Yeah. Mm. And the song that did that was on Unforgivable Fire called Pride. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> One man come in the name of love. One man come and go. One man come here to justify. One man to overthrow. In the name of
3: love. One man. That story is interesting because um that would have been uh I guess 1983 or 84, but maybe 83. But you know that record. We, we worked that record for almost a year, like literally 50 or 51 weeks, and the record was in the top five. And uh, the only the only markets I was missing was New York and L.A. And at the time, the program director at Kiss in L.A. was Jerry D. Francisco, and the program director in New York at Z100 was Scott Shannon. And Larry Berger at PLJ. Mm -hmm. And they were both like, nope, we're not playing that that, uh, avant-garde hippie rock music here. Wow. And I was like, well, actually, you are going to play it. It's just a matter of when you're going to play it. Yeah. And um, so D-Fran, I got D-Francisco to tell me that if I ever got Shannon on the record, he would add it. So, I knew I had to get Shannon on the record mm-hmm. at, at Z100 in New York. So, um, they had sold out four nights at the Meadowlands. And Paul McGinnis told me, we're going to put, the manager of the band said, we're going to put um, two more nights up for sale on the Meadowlands. I'm just letting you know. And I said, can you estimate for me how fast you think you'll sell those out? He says, oh, I think we'll sell it out in, in hours. I said, for real? He says, yeah, mm-hmm. we'll sell it out in hours. I said, all right, I'm going to go close the record. And I called Shannon the week before they put him on sale. And I said, let me tell you something. And I'd been working the record for a year at radio with my guys. And I said to Scott, um, they're going to put two more shows on at the Meadowlands. And I said, if, it shows, if the shows sell out in one day, let's make a deal. If they sell out in one day, you add the record. If the shows, both shows, don't sell out in one day, I'm never going to bring the record up to you again. Never. He said, you got a deal. Because those shows are not selling out. Those are not my listeners. Yeah. And you got a deal. I said, okay.
0: Man, the Rebel Radio crew, we took a field trip down to the Casper Mattress Store. I think it was a pop-up in Venice. I don't even think it's there anymore. But we got to test out the Casper Mattresses and mess around in the store. We played Checkers. James had a pillow fight with the shop girl and I got to sleep on the mattress. While well, I laid down, I would have fallen asleep. No, no bullshit, that thing was so comfortable. Cassie was throwing stuff at me, otherwise I probably would have fallen asleep right in the store. But you could get your own Casper mattress instead of listening to my stupid stories about it. Go to Casper.com, use our special promo code RADIO, and you get $50 off the purchase of a mattress. You can get some pillows and sheets. You probably need new pillows, because your pillows at home are, I guarantee you, they're disgusting. You've been drooling on them. They're filthy. Get get you some new pillows. That's my advice to you for 2016. Go to Casper.com. Use the code RADIO. Save 50 bucks. Terms and
3: conditions apply. Tickets go on sale, and they sell out in about 18 minutes. Wow. Both shows. Wow. Right? Yeah. And, I, and that's when you had to line up to go buy tickets right. there's no right. there's were. no back button Well, the, what there time. was then what there was then was Ticketron okay. remember, remember Ticketron yeah for sure it, it was not, yeah. that was not online but you could go to a store right. you could go, go to a, a Ticketron outlet yeah. and oh, it was okay. you know yeah
0: I used to go to Rainbow
3: Records in San Francisco yeah, yeah. so you know get my Ticketron right. there you go so the show sells out McGinnis calls me from Dublin or wherever he goes shows are sold out thank you very much <laughs> I call up Shannon I said hey Scott it's Phil he says turn on your radio Click, right, and it was on the radio. Wow! And then, oh, like two cool. minutes later, I called D. Francisco, and he says, "I know, I got it." Click, and that's how we closed New York and L.A. Yeah, yeah. and that's how we closed the record. And that's how we broke Utah. Wow,
1: that's amazing. Yeah. So, is that is that your approach to everything? Just
3: no, <laughs> I'm not as cheeky now as I was then. <laughs> <laughs> but so, it was. But I mean, I was determined to get it. Right. So. Yeah. You know I think you said to me what is that kind of what does that kind of label mean that mm-hmm. they call you a marketing genius yeah, in the record yeah. business I don't know you know to me it's kind of silly, but honestly, I think what that means in the record business is that you get the tough records mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you get the records that people think you're never gonna get so there were nobody thought we were going to get you two to pop, never mind the number one, never yeah, because they were a rock band they were all the way over here, and you know. It just wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had, you know, 20 of those in my life right. where people just said, you're never going to get it. And we get it. And, and for me, that's sort of like waving the red yeah, flag sure. in front of the bull. Right. Sure. like, no problem. Yeah, Bring it, you know. <laughs> I love that. Yeah.
1: And, and what answers do you have that they don't have? You know, um, like what I don't, don't they I'm know many. that I just, you know?
3: I don't know that they don't know. I don't know that there's something they don't know that I know. I just think that I look at I look at some I look at something differently you know I mean you know, people see this and I look mm-hmm. at it like 10 different ways and I just find the I find the window in you know just to get it done because right. I'm just hired to do a job my job is to make sure that we break the record so right. I'm gonna break the record that's just what I do you know so I didn't I never thought I was smart about it I just thought that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing right and, and you didn't
1: call it marketing you were just <laughs> making we didn't, it no we
3: didn't even we were making it up I never went to school to run a record company you know <laughs> right. there were no right. schools for that yeah. yeah as we just talked about but you know the you know when you there were all these um we at a and m we had a slew of instrumental records
2: Mm
3: -hmm. well even even at a and we had you know herb Al. i Mm -hmm. mean um chuck mangione feel so good that was up when that record went to number one that was the biggest instrumental that had ever been the number one yeah and and they said you guys just got lucky Mm -hmm. okay a year later herb Alpert gives us a song called rise yeah they said and we said we're gonna chuck me and this record and they said Never gonna happen, you guys just got lucky. get to number one yeah you know so and then we had um who's they oh they is the community okay you know the other promotion um, guys the other record companies the radio stations and 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 does it ever occur to you to listen to them yeah because that gets me fired up i love that part that's like loading the gun yeah that's so like, you're like, all right, I'll call yeah. you back tomorrow. That's like putting the lead in my pencil. Like <laughs> yeah, 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 bring sure. it. Let's so go. Is that
1: is that is that passion or is it work ethics? Like where did you where does that drive come from?
3: You know, I just love music and I love what I do. To yeah. me, it's kind of sport. I don't I don't if if it ever was work, I would probably wouldn't do it. Mm. Yeah. You wouldn't if I ever thought as, it like was t-mations. painful or difficult, then I, I just probably wouldn't do it.
1: But it's just you.
3: I guess so. I yeah. mean it's I don't, it's very nice what you're saying, but I don't look at it that way. I mean, it's, I appreciate it.
1: No, I mean, it's just, you know, like you're, you're not driven by like the constant no's. You're like, I'm driven
3: by the competition. Yeah. You know, I'm a competitive guy, so I'm driven by the competition of getting my record over the finish line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes you can um, negotiate that, Mm -hmm. and sometimes you can't. Sometimes competitive people, like, you know, you don't remember
0: all the, the wins, but you remember the losses.
3: Oh, listen, I can tell you, there's a song called Tempted by Squeeze. Yeah, which, love that record. Yeah, which we all grew up with. We loved it. I worked yeah. that record. I
2: bought a toothbrush, some toothpaste, a flat
3: Never got that record Mm. all the way in, you know. And to this day, that record comes on a radio, and we all call each other, (laughs) you know, like playing. And we all call each other, "That son of a bitch," you know. And 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 it was a guy, and there's a very famous uh, radio guy named Jeff Pollock. Huh? You know Jeff? Yeah. or you know of Jeff? Jeff, sure. So, um, Jeff, at the time that we were working that record, I was a promotion man in New York for A and M Records. This was. 1979. <laughs> and I, uh, I know. I know you were. That's <laughs> she, what that is. She wasn't
0: listening to, to radio at well that years time. years later. Let's, let's yeah. Thank out. you very much.
3: So um, Jeff was the program director at WYSP in Philadelphia. Okay. And he just didn't want to know about that record. He just didn't want to know. And I had him surrounded. Everybody playing it to death. And it was huge. It was getting sales and calls mm-hmm. and requests. And it was just. Yeah. Just didn't want to know, so you know, and he never played it now today it's one of the biggest mm-hmm. recurrent songs of all time, you know, but that record was never in it in its day in nineteen seventy nineteen eighty was never a gigantic right mm-hmm. steamroll or drop dead sure mm-hmm. hit record, yeah wow. which is kind of fun, you know, yeah, yeah, that's interesting,
0: so you know especially in music or or in creative uh industries. But I think also, you know, when we think about the tech business, which I know you're in now with Cabrera. So, you know, the lines, I think, between product and marketing sometimes get a little blurry. So when a record is a hit, history tells us that it was a great record. Correct. When a record was not a hit, history tells us maybe it wasn't that good of a record. Right? And, right. uh And yet, and so, the, you know, the role of marketing – is maybe hard to understand in that picture, right? And I think it's the same with, with technology that we see these apps and these services come and go. And we assume, you know, our our gut is that the biggest one is the best one, right? Uh, how how do you see those two things playing together? Like, can you can you break a shitty record? Let's assume maybe not.
3: Well, it's much harder. There are certainly, let's say this, there are certainly shitty records that become hits. Mm -hmm. We all know that. Because there are records on the radio that have no business being listened to. That is horrible. They're horrible. Yeah. Okay. And, and, but the flip side of that statement is that there are songs that are absolutely fabulous that never get up to bat for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So the truth is, my view is, the song it begins with the song if you have a real song that's a real hit you know it right away and it's our job to prove it it's our job to get it exposed enough so that if it's on the radio it gets call out research mm-hmm. if it's in a store it sells more than the one next to it if it's on the radio it gets played more or whatever the barometer is our job is to separate it from the pack make sure it gets the attention and it gets the chance to be a hit that's what our, the job of a music company is mm-hmm. Um That being said, you know there was a day where the, our industry manipulated a lot of the industry to create hits, and most of the time, the hits are the ones that got through and mm-hmm. stuck but um in today's world, you know the the technology to your point is the great equalizer. It democratizes what that you know any it used to be that there was a system if you had a song and you wanted to bring it to the world. You had to go to a record company you had to get right. signed and yeah. you had to go through that funnel and hopefully you got up to bat hopefully you got the budget hopefully you got prioritized and at the end of the day hopefully you had a hit And if you could string three or four of those together maybe you'd get, have a career
2: mm-hmm.
3: well today anybody can put a song online anybody guy in a garage my 12 year old son yeah so there's no filter there so the job remains the same how do you break a song, out of the pack of the millions of songs. There's a, I heard an estimate recently, which I think I said to you when we saw each other. I, I hear, uh, I hear that there are a million songs a day, Jeez. put up on the internet. That's not an unbelievable number if you think about, around the world. That's not well. No, that's, that's not out of the question. It's not. Although I
0: remember, I think it was around two thousand when the industry was sort of at its peak and maybe starting, right, and uh, that I read something, it was Billboard or whatever, that 28,000 records had come out that year
2: mm.
0: through major and, in in right. you know, like through, actual through releases. releases. Yeah. yeah. So to go from 28,000 a year
3: to a million a day is a big leap <laughs> in, in 15 years. But in 2000, those 28,000 were only put out by record companies or right. by somebody who was making an official release. Yeah like i said you absolutely know, i got I got five sons yeah. <clears throat> you know somebody's putting a record up right now, yeah, it's what it is, yeah, you know so so that's the difference because you know in nineteen uh well I won't even waste your time with this, but everybody becomes everybody is now a composer, yeah. everybody, yeah, simple as that, yeah
0: absolutely and and everyone to some extent becomes a critic, right because you know if you're if you're my age, you know, you relied heavily on the the curators, mm-hmm. whether it was MTV, you know, for me it was... KML or Fog right, or, or the whatever, radio programmers. Yeah, or, Bill Graham or, or, it, the, or the, you know, the Rolling Stone or, whatever those guys who decided out of those, you know, several thousand choices, we're going to narrow it down to these things to focus on. and And we don't have that. And we argue sometimes about, like, you know, the the difference between that system versus what's trending on Mom. YouTube or mm-hmm. on Hype Machine or, you know, on SoundCloud, right, where all this stuff just comes in and certain things filter their way to the top. I think it's it's tempting, and the technology guys would tell you that they've built a system where the best quality just sort of rises. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like I think, that face.
3: I, I think they're delusional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they don't know what they don't know. Right. It's in a sentence. Yeah. It, you know, it's a bunch of guys, but they can't wear their glasses straight banging into each other in the hallway. I, th- I think they don't know a single thing about what we do. Right. At the end of the day, I I, let, let me tell you about a marketing meeting I once had at Virgin Records. Okay. Yeah. I walked into a room. I got into a room late. And it was probably, uh, I can't even guess, maybe 96 or 97. 1996, 1997. But there were enough devices around at that point. It, you know, the internet. Yeah. Everyone had the, a BlackBerry. Or it a, was starting. Yeah. You know, but it hadn't really... There was no infrastructure yet. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. But it was, it was definitely. Mm-hmm. And I walk into a meeting and there's 40 guys, 40 people in the room having a marketing meeting. And what they're arguing about is the devices. Well, this one is faster and this one is better. This one sounds. And I'm like, so I sat down, I'm listening to them and I'm thinking, what the hell are they talking about? And I'm listen, you know. And I'm, so I let them go for like 15 more minutes and I yeah. said, guys, <clears throat> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What you're talking about is inconsequential. Okay, leave this to Bill Gates, leave this to Steve Jobs, whoever the guys were at the time. I said, that's not our business. We have two things that we do in our world. Only two things. We f- we find and identify talent, and we exploit it and bring it to the fans. It's mm-hmm. all we do. This is about distribution that's all Mm -hmm. this is Mm did we did we change our model when when the when the consumer wanted to go from an album to a cassette Mm -hmm. or from a cassette to a cd we didn't we didn't go out of business Mm -hmm. okay so the the that's we're not in the business of devices that's that's for the device business Mm -hmm. companies you know we're in the business of talent yeah and and that's where the record company—that's where the music industry lost its way, yeah. Because mm. they decided they were in a different business than they were really in, and all of a sudden, they lost their seat at the table.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so you—you've you've said publicly, the record business didn't get killed; or committed
3: suicide, right? That's right. By not listening to that. its its customers, and that's a hard thing for me to say because my peers mm-hmm, have given me some heat on that, mm-hmm. you know, and because and the people who I love yeah. the most have given me the most heat but it's what I believe. So talk about that a little bit.
0: How, how, when you say that that they needed to listen to their
3: customers and they didn't, Mm -hmm. what does that mean? The music industry is filled with, you know, it's filled with people who understand that we deal with artists who create art. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But the business of the business is about transactions. It's about sales. And how does my record sell more than your record and your record sell more than his record and his record sell more? That's that's the nature of the business, right? Mm -hmm. That's about driving. That's a hit business. Same as TV or same as film or any entertainment genre. So at the end of the day, what's the number one rule in, in retail? You listen to your customer. Number one rule. What's the number one thing the music industry did not do? They did not listen to their customer. We forced customers to buy 10 tracks on an album when they wanted one track. Mm -hmm. We forced them to pay too much to receive too little. We forced them to uh, be inconvenienced when they wanted to consume music. There was only one way to get it. You had to drive to the store and you had to, you know. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Yeah. And so we were, and when the technology came, we fell further behind even faster because for a bunch of guys who claimed to be so progressive, the one thing we were not being at all was progressive because we didn't want to hear about mm-hmm. a different way or another way to talk to our consumers. It just mm-hmm. wasn't in the wasn't in the playbook. So all these other um, shoulder and ancillary businesses were coming up around us, mm-hmm. and um, we refused to uh, listen to you know you know we're the guys the r i a a sued the fans. I mean, how do you sue fans? How yeah, do you right. sue your buyers? yeah like wh- that's crazy what business is that? so yeah, it's um, basically giving up right so look i'm I'm outspoken on it because um i I think that if i think that if the people who I love the most in this business thought about it, they probably would have a hard time disagreeing with the mistakes that got made, especially in the nineties and I'm not I'm not critical about it like you know I mean I was there I was mm-hmm. part of it I'm not saying the other guys or mm-hmm. or this guy or that guy I'm just yeah. saying that as an industry we missed the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the point was to create the shortest line between the artists and the fans. That mm-hmm. was our job. Right. And we didn't do it. Yeah. And that's where technology got to step in. Right. Sure. Yeah. Well, I
0: think you know that's that's a a great point in the um, the reality at the same time is that the business has become exponentially harder. Oh, yeah. Not to say that your job was easy, right? But it's become much more complex, yes. right? Like you said, there, there used to be a system, mm-hmm. and you either worked that system well or not, and you either had the resources or you didn't, yeah. right? But now there isn't that kind of system that's no such system, a direct right. line to success. Mm-hmm. Right. And, I, and I think in a lot of industries... That just throws people into chaos. I think you know. Well, in this
3: industry, that's exactly what it's done.
0: Yeah. Um, my the favorite quote I've heard about the music industry. Do you need, we can take a break? No, you I'm good. Check
3: that Keep out.
0: going. So my favorite quote about the music industry is: is uh, "When smart people do enough stupid things, they might as well be stupid people." There you go. And so I wonder how, obviously, you know these guys and, and you're one of them that, you know, built an industry that that touched the world, that changed the world. Um, and so how do you go from being that smart, to being not you that personally, dumb. but, you know,
3: to, to making those kind of mistakes? The same thing that led us all to the business in the, in the first place is the thing that, Blinded us when we had a, when the call to action came. Mm. We we all got in the business because we had a love affair with music. But most of the, most of the most of the people who succeeded and went pretty far in the business were people who were very very passionate about the about sure. music. Sure, mm-hmm. as music. There were guys who came in because they wanted to make money, they wanted an expense account, they wanted to screw around, whatever it was. But that was a yeah later yeah the the the, the real sure. the real stuff was. People came in because of passion. When when this when the technology came, it was almost as if they were paralyzed in. Not not even fear, but paralyzed. It is. It's like. How could this? How could our sanctity be invaded? Mm. You know, there was a sense of that. There was mm-hmm. a sense of wait a minute. This is rarefied air. We're dealing. We're dealing with artists yeah. and art, and this isn't a. This is. This stuff is crass. This is the lowest case denominator. I mean, what are they? This doesn't apply to us. That was the mentality, you yeah. know. And um, but people, especially in America, you know, and and in the Western countries, people want what they want, and they want as much as they can get for as little as they have to pay for mm-hmm. it. It's just what it is. Mm-hmm. It's the Walmart. You know, mm-hmm. the big a, a big indicator for us <coughs> was when you know our music was not always sold in the big boxes. Mm-hmm. Sure. sure. It was sold in record theater, and it was sold in, yeah. you know.
1: Is it me, or does it feel like the music industry is always fighting somebody? <laughs> like,
3: yeah, Look, you, I'm going to tell you something. The music industry gets a bad rap. It, everything I'm telling you yeah, is I've the heard, way I feel. But, uh, but the flip like side of it is the music industry gets a bad rap. I'm going to tell you why they get a bad rap. Mm-hmm. It is a very, very tough business to succeed in. Because if you sign 10 artists a year, mm-hmm. The statistics are that only two and a half of them end up in black ink and seven and a half of them end up in red ink. And of the two and a half, only one of them is going to, like, pay for the other nine.
2: Wow.
3: So it's a very, very um, risky business. It's a high-stakes business. You can go two or three years without having a hit. You can put a company out of business. Right. Right. Yeah, it's very, very high stakes.
1: Does it feel like you could there could just be better decisions made on the business side?
3: Well, that's that's the rub, art versus commerce, because mm-hmm. when you say there could be better decisions made, what you're really thinking, and, and we don't have time to get for you or thought to go all the way, but I'll help you get there, mm-hmm. what you're ultimately going to be thinking is, why don't you guys have more hits? <laughs> that's <laughs> sure. what you're ultimately thinking. Mm-hmm. But but hits are determined by consumers. hmm Okay, so you never know what's going to work. You never know what's going to work. Mm-hmm. Something could be doing
2: yeah.
3: You know, you just don't know. You think mm-hmm. it's the greatest thing in the world and nobody cares. Right. You know, we signed Nora Jones as Why, a but... as a jazz artist and you know, that first record sold 15 million records. Yeah. Not in your wildest <laughs> dream could you imagine right. that. Not yeah. in your wildest dream. Yeah. Right. You know, it just wasn't even in the book. So right. it
1: Right.
3: We I went to a meeting when when The biggest corporate catastrophe in history was AOL and Time Warner. And I went to a a meeting of CEOs, Warner, Time Warner CEOs. And I sat in a room with Bob Pittman, who's one of my oldest friends, who I met when I was 20 years old as a program director in Chicago, WLS. And uh, now he's, you know, king of the world. And he does this deal. And he brings in a guy who's the CFO. And uh, the guy stands up in front of the music group and goes, you know, we figured out what the problem is with the music division. You guys just need to have more hits. <laughs> and I was sitting next to Ahmed Erdogan. Yeah. And he said, you are a genius. <laughs> Come on, Phil, let's go. <laughs> and we get up and walk out of the meeting. And Bob's like, no, no, don't leave. Go, yeah. You know, it was yeah. like, he, what, sure. uh, well, of course that's the answer, have We're more right, hits. Right. Of yeah. course, that's the answer. Right. The other answer is spend less money having hits. Right. The other answer is when you have three big hits, don't spend money on the <laughs> fourth one because you never know when it's going to. St- you know. Right. Yeah. It's obvious in retrospect, but when you're signing artists, you know. Well, you, don't you know, know what you don't know.
0: I, I get it though. It strike it struck me. So I grew up in the music business, and then I started working with brands. You know, around thirty years old, and and you know we were working with a big. Car company. Mm-hmm. When I learned this statistic about seventy five, I mean, maybe it was even higher that I read about uh, you know, what percentage of records lose money, and I just thought, you know, what if the car business operated that way? What if any business? Operated any that business, way? right? And how no would business. you? There's no business, right? And um, and I think you know another. We're going to challenge some of these stories that the technology infiltration of music is telling us, right? But another one is that. Companies now, music companies can research their way out of that, right? And there's all this hype about the data-driven
3: record label, but it it's still you can't underestimate the value of a song that makes you cry, mm-hmm. or makes you tap your foot, right. or that you're subliminally singing to that you don't even know you like the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, which you doesn't really happen with a value toothpaste, in it. does it? Or toilet paper, <laughs> right. or diapers, or perfume. Right. It's just, it's, a, it's an anomaly. Yeah. Right.
0: Absolutely. Crazy. So, uh, here's what I want to talk about. You were at you were at A&M. It was an indie. Right. You went to Island. was an indie at the time, before they got sold, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you were at Arista as an indie, I believe. And then Virgin as a startup. And then you go, you make the move to Warner's, and then Capital AMI was... Uh, majors. Right. What what did you need to change? What changed for you in terms of how you operate in those different environments? No, no. Like how do you how do you how
1: do you make the transition how do you make the transition from from an
0: indie to a major label guy?
3: Well let me tell you, it's not that tough. I'll tell you why. There's a reason from in my particular journey. I'll tell you why it was not that that tough. When I went from A and M to Island and then Island to Aristotle. they were all about the same size company. Yeah. And um, at that time, how big is that? Um, you know, thirty releases a year, twenty-five releases a year. Yeah. How they big? Are, how many people does it take to run a label that size? Hundred people, two hundred people, something yeah. like that. Not yeah. a, a couple hundred people. Uh-huh. And um, you know, they all had their share of big, a big artist. You know. AM had the Super Tramps, and 38 Special was having hits, and sure. Sticks was having big hits, and Carole King had a huge record. Yeah, We get to uh, Island, and we're busting up. You know, Robert Palmer had a couple number one records with, and then yeah. you two. And We got to Arista, and that's right when Clive signed Whitney Houston. We used to go to New Jersey and sit in Wendy's and have hamburgers with Whitney Houston, this girl that he just signed. Yeah. Were you th- was Bob Marley still alive when you were at Island? He had just died. Okay. They had just put out Legends. Oh, that, wow. That beautiful record. So, um, so they were all about the same thing. When Branson showed up, his idea was, uh, you know, look, we're going to go start this company in America, and we want you to be part of it. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I know, you know, I, I don't know anything about starting a business, you know. And he said, no, that's all right. I do. Yeah. I said, okay. We talked for like three hours, and he said, you know, you're going to move to California. I said, no, no, no I'm not, I'm not moving to California. <laughs> From New York. I'm not moving to California. And <laughs> <I'm not
1: laughs>
0: at the time, sorry to interrupt, but you know, Branson now is—is is everybody in America knows, everybody in the world
3: knows who Richard Branson is.
0: Right. At the well, time, oh, he's a celebrity now. Yeah, he
3: wasn't a celebrity then. I knew who he was because Virgin was right an absolute contender in the, in music the, in the UK. Mm. Right, but I only yeah. knew him as a record guy. Right, mm. you know, sure. I knew of him. I never met the guy before he showed up, and you know. So anyway, um, so going to Virgin was an easy transition coming out of those companies because. The industry needed a change, and he was willing to take a shot with our team, the team that he put in place as the initial team, the inaugural team. And um, and we did very well out of the box. And, um, you know, candidly, the company was a midsize independent that had a lot of hits. Yeah. And so it was not that different from an A&M or sure. a, mm-hmm. an island. You know, be, it ultimately became bigger. Right. But rewind to what we were talking about an hour ago, I said there were two schools. Mm -hmm. And the school that I went to was the A&M school of Jerry Moss and the Island School of Chris Blackwell and now the Branson School. And these guys were all, in their own right, entrepreneurial, very, very entrepreneurial. So I had been trained, don't forget, by these guys, by Branson and Chris Blackwell and Jerry Moss to think... Entrepreneurially, it was just the way I was trained to think about things and look at the world. So, but but all those companies, ironically, especially AM, was modeled after Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. They were when when A and M was built, and when we built Virgin, we modeled it after Warner Brothers because our view was everything had to run around the artist. So I always thought it would be fun to run one of the big majors, but. I had already decided in my head that of all the majors at that time, which would have been Columbia, Polygram, MCA, Universal, you know, mm-hmm. I had already decided myself emotionally the only one I could ever run would be Warner Brothers because that was the only one that, mm. that's what I was trained to do. I wasn't yeah. right. trained to run Columbia. I would need a sledgehammer to run Columbia. That's sure. not what i do. Or a machine gun. That's what yeah. I hired Donnie, you right. know. But, but the, so, but I figured it would never come up and I'd say it Virgin forever. Mm-hmm. And then in 1997, it came up out of the blue. You know, uh, Quincy yeah. Jones called me up and he said, I need your help. <laughs> I need you to go over and I need you to come help us with Warner Brothers. We got a mess. I need you to help clean it up. And I said, uh, okay, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to be the president. I said, the president of Warner Brothers Records? <laughs> oh, you, I'm crack? <laughs> he said, no, no, I think that's what you should do. And I said, Yeah, okay, great. I, I think I should <laughs> play for the Lakers also. Right. Now what? Uh-huh. Right. You know, so
1: What was that like?
3: running, playing for the Lakers. Well, it was just, a lot of
1: fun. No, just walking into Warner after, you know, they had like that, you know, rough. Upheaval. Yeah, they just had a rough time, and then you came in to like save the day. What was well,
3: that? I, I didn't really, I didn't think I saved anything. I just thought that I, you know, I, I had a particular style of management, mm-hmm. and I and I was an organization guy, and I knew, that, I knew that what I was coming into at Warner Brothers was that people had been there for a very long time. They were older, and they'd been around too long, and they were trying to, they were just old and tired and needed to Yeah. Yeah, they just needed a fresh look. Yeah. And that's and that's just what happened and mm-hmm. it was great. Yeah. So what are some of the lessons that you got from, from those guys coming up? You always delegate. Um you have to you have to learn how to delegate because you need to you should never have more than like a half dozen direct reports in a big company. Now, those are all multi billion dollar businesses. Yeah. And if you're trying to if you're trying to Manage more than six people, you're not doing a good job. Mm -hmm. And um, you also need to have time to put up the periscope and steer the company. So that's a big piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle was that um, I spent as much time with the kids in the mailroom as I did with the Mm -hmm. senior people because Mm -hmm. I was trying to grow kids from the inside. Who who taught you that? Uh, Branson, more than anybody. Because Branson is, you know, when we met Branson, he had already at that time, in 1986 when we started Virgin, he already had a hundred companies at that point. Wow. And he, and and I remember sitting at dinner with him the first time and I said, how do you find a hundred qualified people to run a hundred companies? He says, I don't. <laughs> he says, I find people yeah. that I like and I look them in the eye and when I get up from my meeting, I either like them or I don't like them. Or I either trust them or I don't trust them. If I like them I trust them, I give them a shot. And the worst case scenario is that I make a mistake. I was like, "Wow, that's kind of scary." Yeah. But pretty freaking smart. Yeah. Yeah, I mean,
0: does it feel like there's a just this overwhelming fear
3: of mistakes? I think there is in everything. Mm-hmm. I think people are so. I, sadly, I think that is the case. But for the, the motive, I think is bad because I think people are so consumed with me. Mm-hmm. Everybody's in the me business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. And now more than ever, you know, if I see my kids take one more selfie, I'm gonna break <laughs> their wrist. You know, but it's like it's like ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's like you're so consumed with your own nonsense, it's like, God forbid you do something wrong. Who cares if you do something wrong?
1: Right. You right.
3: know? Who cares? Yeah. So you, you learn from it and you do it better next time. That's the end of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Next. Fantastic. It, I think that's I mean I think it's that simple, but <laughs> you can't tell people that. You know? Yeah.
0: I think next week we'll tape the show from Cassie's new Casper mattress. We'll all lay on the bed and do our interview from there and see who falls asleep first. You can go to Casper.com and get your own mattress, use the code RADIO, and save $50 off the purchase of a new mattress. You can also get a pillow, some sheets, who knows what else they might have there for you. Go to Casper.com, type in RADIO as a promo code, and you save 50 bucks terms and conditions apply. So I want to talk about Guevara because I know that's that's what you're doing now. Uh, New, you know, streaming music service. Um, I guess my first question is how do you take all this stuff that we're talking about, all these things you've learned and how does that apply
3: in this environment? Well. It doesn't naturally apply. Yeah. So I'm kind of a guy with a shoehorn trying to make it apply. Okay. Because there's really not a lot of room for the artist in the tech world. So I w- when I left, the last time I worked in one of the big companies was at EMI. Mm-hmm. I left there in 2007. And, um, and I was approached by a few companies to do different things when I came out. You know... um, yahoo at that time was looking to do a music thing and youtube was talking about coming in to run t- and, and you know in both cases i said well how are you gonna how are you gonna pay how are you gonna pay the artist oh we're not gonna pay the artist i said well you know what then you need to you need to talk to somebody else yeah because um you know i just spent 30 years growing artist right yeah. i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna poop on them mm-hmm. so then um about a couple of years later, I met uh, Klaus Oberg, who founded Guevara. And he said, I think, you're, I think you're the guy that we should be talking to. I said, why do you think that? And he said, well, because we've heard you, you know, I, I hear that you kind of, you, you want to stand behind that, and you've turned down some offers based on the fact they weren't paying. Well, well we're going to pay the artists. We're going to have music deals. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, how are you going to do that? And he said, well, the, the, where there's the fan and the consumer... The thing that used to connect those two things used to be called the record industry. Now, that's crumbled. So everybody's been doing this dance to figure out how to connect those two con- communities, you know. We think the guy that can be the pipe between those two is the brand community. And he proceeded to tell me about how they wanted to use their technology to create brand pages and brand relationships with the artist and the consumer in um like relationships that would serve both communities, and it made mm-hmm. a lot of sense to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got on board with that. You know, I knew I had to learn. I was always an artist guy. I was always a marketing guy. I was always a branding guy. So I was never a tech guy. I'm still not a tech guy. I didn't like it then. I like yeah, it two lit. phones. That's something. Yeah, I hate them both equally. <laughs> one's an AT and T phone. One's a Verizon phone. They both suck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. But um. I didn't have to like it but I did have to understand it. Yeah. So before mm-hmm. Guevara, what I did was I spent a year at Shazam. And Shazam, when I got there, was basically a company that was, you know, it was the app that would, you know, do its trick. Uh-huh. The song yeah. came on, you hit the button.
2: Where's your Shazam?
1: And here's the song, you <laughs> yeah.
3: know. The song is the Red Hot Chili Peppers and yeah. it's called blah, blah, And Blah, then blah then and you buy it. it. Came out in 1990. Okay. That 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 was the trick. Yeah. And I said to them, and, and I said, well, how many people you got using this thing? And they said, this was in 2010 or eleven. they said, "Oh, we had very very nonchalant we had um two point three billion hits mm-hmm. last year, and I was like b <laughs> yeah. that'd be like McDonald's billion yeah. okay so that would make you the biggest music app in the world right And they said, "Well, yeah, you know, and arguably they're considered now one of the ten top best, top ten best apps." And I said, it would it would seem to me that if you have that fire hose of music fans coming through this thing, it would seem to me that you would try and hold some of them for more than the four seconds it takes to do this. Right. To hit the to hit the button. Yeah. Okay.
2: Right.
3: So, and, you know, they said, yeah, we thought about that, but, you know, it works and everybody's happy and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know? So I proceeded to give them three or four different initiatives, you know, that... When I was there, um, they couldn't get to them, But happily, a couple of years later, I started seeing some things show up, which were very recognizable, which I was thrilled. Mm-hmm. Couldn't be more proud or more thrilled that they were using some of the things that we spoke about. So, nice. Yeah. So that that was the beginning of it. And then Guevara came along and had been on their board for years. And the thing that's exciting about Guevara is that, you know, they they've, they've put a big stake in the ground in Australia which is great. And then we pushed our way into Indonesia with a relationship with Lenovo. And that's going very well. And, you know, for years we've talked about coming into America and I've kind of, I've really advised, you know, that maybe coming into America wasn't the best thing to do at the (coughs) time in the last couple of years because unlike Australia where there were a couple of music players and unlike Indonesia where there were a couple of players You know, America had 20 players. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and some pretty big, and some big ones. And I said, you know, what's going to happen is you're going to come into America. These guys are spending 150, 200 million dollars a year just in advertising. Yeah, Yeah. So you're going to come to America. You're going to spend a huge amount of money for what? Yeah, to be number what? Just number ten? Not even number 50. You know, like Mm -hmm. to what? To say we're in America. So yeah, you know, I've always um, been a proponent of. Excuse me. If you can't do something different or better, don't do it. As simple as that. If you can't do it better and you can't do it different, just don't. So my advice was wait on America until there's a reason to come into America. Go out and there's so many markets in the world. Mm -hmm. So we do Australia, Indonesia. India now is lit up big time. Moving into Russia, you know. Just those four markets alone. If you just look at Australia, Indonesia, India... And you know you're talking about one point six or one point eight million a billion people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's a big audience to tap into. Yeah. Yeah. Huge brands. So you can make a business doing that. Make it make that business. And then when you show up in America, at least you have a couple of billion people in play. Sure. And you've got global brands mm-hmm. attached to you and that's just you're not yeah. showing up, you know, like a, like you're, you know, the Avon lady. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So so why do you think
3: Guevara has a shot now? Because now I think that um, it could be the time to do something different and better. I think I think the world doesn't need 20 music players. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's Pepsi and there's Coke. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need 20 different people I agree. telling us how to stream music. Yeah. So there's going to be, I think, a big consolidation. Yeah. I don't know yeah, if we'll go from to 20 to 2, but I could... I could certainly imagine us going from 20 to 6 mm-hmm. or 5, whatever it is, okay? Yeah. And, but at the end of the day, everybody who are the the big players basically just do basic services. You know, there's nothing sexy or exciting or different about a lot of these big companies mm-hmm. going unnamed. Right. You know, I mean, it's just, they're just players. Right. Yeah. So, with Guevara, what we've tried to do is attach different featured programming things like House of Guevara or Fradio and... These brand pages have been very, very successful, and I think you might have seen uh, the Harley Davidson thing uh-huh. in India when yeah. we were all together. You know, there are there are good examples like that around the world of things that are separating Kavera out of the pack, and and giving better and different engagement for music fans, and and that's really what we've been harping on, and that's that's kind of the story we're telling, mm-hmm. and we want to keep telling because. Mm-hmm. That's how we think we get separated. And while everybody else is going to go and consolidate, Mm -hmm. what I'm hoping is that we get to cultivate and and nurture a future.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Fradio is really interesting. I did check that out. That's interesting. Right. And so anybody can kind of essentially create your own radio station where. With your own community of friends. Right. Right.
2: Yeah.
0: That is really cool. Yeah. Um, And then the the other thing I think that stands out to me as different is really the brand involved. And, and I know you've talked about that a bunch um, in terms of the role that brands, the opportunity that brands have to play in this music-fan relationship. Um, where have you seen that, you know, work the best? What do you think is,
3: you know, what do you hold up? Um, not that many years ago, artists were afraid of the brands. <clears throat> Excuse me, because nothing was cool, nothing yeah. was, right. nothing was cool enough. Sure. Right. And then, um, you know, we did things in the '90s, even as early as the '90s, where by choice artists would say, you know, you know, there was this band, there was this artist that had a record by uh, a producer it was called Enigma, mm-hmm. Sade remember that? Yeah. That song was dead as a doornail. I was working on that record for months. Couldn't get the first base. They put it in a haagen commercial in Germany, and the, the thing exploded. Wow. In in Europe. Yeah. Then I was able to move the record over here, and I couldn't get it all the way in, but I got it to mid chart. And then when I got it to the mid chart, we put it into a into a Playboy Channel um, like bumper breaks. You know, the record went crazy. So. The brand worked. Okay, so that's a very small example. Yeah. Move forward to like 1996. There was a big Tina Turner tour, and we needed a sponsor for the tour. We went out and made a deal with um, legs, because Tina Turner was always famous for her yeah. legs. even though sure. she became an older artist, mm-hmm. you know. And you may remember a great, great the pantyhose. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there was there was a great commercial they made of her strutting across the stage, mm-hmm. but they would shot her from the waist down. It was mm-hmm. just her legs, you know. Cool. And it looked like the legs of a 20 year old woman. And, you know, at that point, Tina was already in her 60s. Wow. And it was like, you know, it was, a, that was a big story. And that was yeah. a huge campaign. And it blew the doors off Tina's record and mm-hmm. legs, you know. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, and I, at that point, I was um, still at, at Virgin, but, you know, we had, um, well, at that point, everybody said, well, where's my commercial? Yeah. You know, it went from, right. yeah, sure. it, it went from like on Monday, yeah. <clears throat> I don't want to be in business, you know, I don't want to be Kate Tell. Right, I'm, I'm too cool. I'm, you know, I'm the verve. Yeah, I can't beat ktel, Yeah, and then like by Friday, it was like, where's my commercial?
0: Yeah. Okay. Because somebody <laughs> got ten million dollars in of their course. pocket. And yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and people have to see it work, and then yeah. they get on later. I get it. Um, what do you? Uh, where are the ways? Where are the places that that gets screwed up? And specifically, you know, what would you? What do you want
3: the brands to know? It gets screwed up less today mm-hmm. because there's a necessity where there used to be a desire only. Right. You know, if you could convince the brand that it would work yeah. mm-hmm. for the artist and, and for them to be involved with the artist. And if you could convince the artist, hey, these guys, are, you know, it's kind of a cool thing you share an audience with. Then it was just like, you had to create the love fest, mm-hmm. you know, it was out of creating desire. Mm-hmm. Today there's a necessity. Because yeah. the necessity is that in a real in, a, in an alignment that works, you could sell three, four, or five times more music than you otherwise would without the brand relationship. Mm-hmm. Sure. And the brand recognized the value of the cachet of the artist. So um, th- there's not a lot of room for it to get screwed up anymore because it, this has become a pretty well refined thing, mm-hmm. as you mm-hmm. might imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, if there is a place to get screwed up, is where somebody's ego. Overtakes their brain, mm-hmm. and they decide, you know, well, I'm entitled to this kind of this or that, and yeah. But that's like anything else; it's just sure. not mm-hmm. just nonsense. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, you know, I've heard you talk uh, publicly about kind of lifestyle brands, right? And and so I'm wondering, is this is this kind of
3: does this make sense for every brand? No, no, it doesn't make sense. Every, look, every brand can use music, but just using music is. It's a one-off opportunity, right? The place where you have a real relationship. Do you remember? Um, do you remember when Sting was in the back of a Jaguar, by any chance, no. riding through the countryside? No. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a Sting record that we that um, I wasn't involved in. If I worked with Sting in the police, obviously for mm-hmm. years at A and M. But then, fast forward, I was already at Virgin. But there was a song they couldn't get. It was after St- after the police broke up. Sting had a big record that was kind of mid-charting. They couldn't get the record all the way in. They were trying to find a spot to put it in. And a Jaguar opportunity came up. And they weren't sure if they should do it. So all of a sudden, here's Sting riding around the backseat of a Jaguar, driving through the Italian countryside. Beautiful commercial. And he's singing this song. Blew the record up. Mm -hmm. Completely blew the record up. And the record ended up being a big record. And everybody was happy. And Jaguar was happy because they had Sting in the backseat. And (laughs) everybody lived happily ever after. But... Basically, after the six or eight weeks of the campaign, it was done. It's over. There's no relationship, you know. Yeah. So what, what's better is you take a guy like, uh, you know, a Ben Harper or Jack Johnson, and you align them with companies like Quicksilver or Hurley or mm-hmm. Billabong. Okay, you know that they share the same, yeah, or the same consumer the same mm-hmm. customers, mm-hmm. right? Same demographics, same psychographics. It's like, okay, this is a match that can go on. This is a relationship that can go for a while. It goes beyond a song or an album. It can go over three or four cycles and really you can integrate the brand and the artist into each other's because you're growing a loyalty in that fan. That's the difference. Yeah, One's an op- one's opportunistic and one is sure. more yeah. lo- Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what hasn't been done or where would you like to see
3: that marriage of brands and music go? Well, I'm going to give you an answer that's, it's a little bit of a, I don't mean it to sound like a tricky answer, but it's a little bit of a tricky answer because you get the next thing, when I tell you what I want to see happen, then you're going to say, oh, good, how's that going to happen? And I don't know <laughs> the answer yet. Okay. Fair but enough. what I'd love to see happen, okay, now that I'm now that I'm not running the big companies anymore, I work with artists yeah. who need my help. And I'm happy to work with people like Avera and, you know, anybody who's putting music out. But for me, my agenda, my personal agenda with, every, with everything I do right now is, to reestablish the value of music. That is my goal. Mm. That music has value. Mm-hmm. It's not free, it's not disposable. Um, it's, it does have value and it is important. Mm-hmm. So, with whatever I am doing, whether it's in the Guevara world or the artists I currently work with or whatever it is, for me it's about how do I reinstill the value. Of this artist and this song for the consumer. So, big shot, how are you going to do that? I don't have a clue. Okay, I'm still working on that. I get but, it. But but if you're asking me where I'd like to see these relationships go, where I'd like mm-hmm. to see these relationships go, is that the brand helps me tell their consumer that music has value.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. No, I get it, and I and I appreciate that. That's not that simple to create. Yeah. Not that simple. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, especially now because you know now we're paid. Now I'm fighting a generation <coughs> of kids who think music is free. Right. right. Yeah. Which no. Unless you're sure getting
1: something so exclusive. that
3: right. Yeah.
0: No, yeah, I so totally get it. A lot and, and, you're up against. You know, I. Um, you know, I helped build a branded record label for Scion, mm-hmm. um, and we've pitched a bunch of. You know, we've we've argued in a lot of boardrooms that brands need to become the new labels, right? I'm and have all about an opportunity that. Opportunity to, to just replace these pieces of what those labels do now and they have um but you know
3: there is an absolute opportunity there i don't mean to cut you off but i will tell you that everybody every brand that i ever had that conversation with loves the idea until we have one conversation i tell them i because i feel very strongly about being very transparent about Mm -hmm. spending somebody else's money yeah Mm -hmm. so i say i want you to know that in the big businesses that we ran this is the ratio. Yes. Mm-hmm. And these were guys that were doing this their whole lives <clears throat> and knew how to do it. Yeah. And they were only hitting right. two, out of, two out of ten.
0: Well, yes, although, you know, I mean, I talk about this stuff all day with you. I, I love it. But um, But let's say, you know, that is as a business that needs to generate a profit on its own from the sale of music, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, a big consumer brand maybe doesn't need to have that type of financial relationship to the right. music that they could put out they can monetize it in other ways through sales mm-hmm. of their products right mm-hmm. so you know but i think th- i bring it up because i think it, it absolutely speaks to the point of for the most part what i've seen is brands trying to extract the value out of music right, right. to say here's a relationship between artist and fan that exists let's go get some of that as opposed to like pepsi with beyonce Absolutely right. We want we want to want to buy a
3: piece of that cool, right,
0: and have it rub on us. As, as opposed well, go, to yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. We want to help enrich the experience that cons- our consumers can have related to music. And to your point, like we want to we want to make that valuable and add to. So that. you're
3: you're coming from <clears> my position, which I appreciate that yeah. that there is value in the music in its own right, right. Absolutely, and and as you probably know, you know you have to convince the brand that they don't want to have an opportunity. They just want the biggest. Right. They want the opportunistic relationship because you know what they want. They want the biggest name. Yes, with the biggest mm-hmm. bang for the least they have to pay. Get me them. Right. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you've sat in that meeting. Yeah. You know, so and and, it means, and there's, there's the time biggest for that, brand right? doesn't mean the right brand. I mean, the Absolutely. biggest
0: artist doesn't mean the right artist. Right. You know, that's the thing. I think there's a time for that when that makes sense. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of other scenarios where that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, I always say that, you know, people have this burning need to give someone money who doesn't need the money. Hey, you know,
3: it can cut both ways. You yeah. know, before Beyonce, yeah. they had Nicki Minaj, which right. was a train wreck. Yeah. Oh, boy. You know? Sure. Those guys at Pepsi were, like, trying to slit their wrists every time that commercial came on, and they're like, oh, my God, what would we do? I'm sure. So they thought, the, they thought the cure was to go to Beyonce, Right. and she ran out of gas once they paid her 75 million bucks. It was like, Jesus. Sh- Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's, crazy. It's, it's, it's a very tough business to... It's a tough business,
0: you know. Yeah. Well, mm. we're almost out of time. I have a couple last questions. Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the first record
3: you ever bought? Yep. Roy Orbison, Crying. Nice. Very cool.
2: I was all right for a while. I could smile for a while. My hands so tight as you stop to say hello. Oh, you wish me well you couldn't tell but
0: I've been crying. Uh do you remember the last record you bought?
3: Yes, but I can't remember the oh, name wow. of it. That's it was good, recent. Nice. It was um uh, it will come back to me. Cause I bought it when it first came out. Oh, it was um, the weekend. Oh, nice. Yeah, He's very cool. Best.
0: It's a great record. Um, I, I, this is not a fair question, but uh, think of a favorite live show you've ever seen. That's
3: not a that's not a hard question. Okay, uh, it's a tie between two shows. It was the last show I ever saw the Police play at Madison Square Garden. The last show they played in their first iteration as a band mm. in 1980, wow. before they blew themselves up. Because the whole... The only thing they ever talked about was being able to play Madison Square Garden. Mm. And um, that was the last night they played together. That's until cool. Until the reunion tour. And it was ridiculous. How <laughs> bad? <laughs> yeah. And uh, the other one was the... Uh, the other one was... Madison Square Garden U2 after we broke Pride oh cool and to see to see the song that we spent a year getting uh, up the chart you yeah. know like blow the roof off that place was that's big. cool it was big yeah it was a moment
0: that was my first not my first concert ever but the first ticket I bought for myself mm-hmm. was Joshua Tree at uh, Oak and Coliseum right nice. yeah Oak and Coliseum unbelievable Amazing experience. Yeah. Well, Phil Q, thanks for being here, man. I appreciate it. And uh make sure everybody Enjoyed signs
3: it. up for Guevara. <laughs> and yeah. uh come back every time we talk player very very soon and yeah. in your coming to your town soon. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Thanks. Nice. Okay, thank, thank you. you guys very much.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: That was fun. That was Phil Q. If you're not smarter now than you were when this started, then there's something wrong with you. I guess you weren't listening. Hey, leave us a comment on Twitter at RebelRadioNet. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Rebel Radio. And don't forget to come back next week for more Rebel Radio.